welcome Daniel and Michelle Gardner, otherwise known as OJ Rose, OG Rose. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Swain. Welcome, welcome to Parallax Sangha. Um, <laughs> we are a community. We do all kinds of things. We do um, study groups. We do live events like this one. We invite people we think who have a certain amount of enthusiasm. I the word enthusiasm I learned today means entheos means the divine is with them. So 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 I would say that entheos the divine is with OG Rose. Um, so I'm going to pass over Owen to begin the conversation, and I'm going to jump in and and ask questions as we go along. Amazing, amazing. Yes, we have here. An intellectual power couple. That's how I like to think of them. And the topic we chose for this evening, which is quite a broad one, but I think we will be able to just riff around it and find something interesting, was going to be literature and philosophy. And I was interested in this in the context of O.G. Rose, because they write both fiction and nonfiction works. And uh, and you guys do so together uh, as well as separately, I think. So that's a, there's some kind of interesting creative dance between you. Um, in terms of starting off, I was just today listening through both of your presentations on Thus Bugs Zarathustra for Cadell's last recent conference, um, which gave me some interesting material to just start spinning up an interesting little thesis about literature and philosophy. Because, Daniel, you were discussing your theory that what happens with Nietzsche is a shift away from what you're calling uh, bestocentrism. I think if I'm understanding the idea that up to that point, the Western intellectual tradition was about giving something that already pre-existed. And Nietzsche saying, no, 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 no. We need to flip to a stance of becoming where the subject is not simply just taking something from what's come before, but generating their own being, their own expression for themselves. Um, Michelle, your piece was about motherhood and pregnancy and giving birth, which is also a theme that Nietzsche is kind of obsessed with in Zarathustra. Um, but fascinating to see how you interpret it yourself as a woman, as a mother, and then link that to the process of being an artist and taking in inspiration and gestating it and going through the the painful process of giving birth to it. And then it's like, I, I especially like one of the points when you said that the thing about giving birth to a baby is you can't undo it. There's no control Z. It's there. But it's also fragile. Um and I started to wonder, maybe there's something in particular about Nietzsche's style and Nietzsche's style in Zarathustra. It is a very literary work, even though he's often referred to as a philosopher. I find myself thinking and referring to him more as a wild poet who uses philosophical themes than as a, a strict uh, essay writer. Um So with all of these things said, I'm actually just going to ask you perhaps to respond and say what do you think about the intersection between literature and philosophy yeah well you know it's, it, thank you both so much for having us today we're so honored to be here um my in my foray into philosophy was through literature actually so i didn't really seek out philosophy like on its own terms i really was very fascinated in narratives in stories and people's stories you know I love talking to people so I just I just enjoy hearing about people's lives and like whatever they want to share with me and so uh, that and, and also poetry was really the avenue for me to start thinking about ideas 
and start thinking about and realizing the fact that all narratives are fueled by ideas, right? And so for me, um, I think like why I actually used poetry for the the, the spoke Zarathustra uh, presentation was because I wanted to honor Nietzsche's style because he chose he chose he chose a poetic style he chose a literary style and he actually called the spoke Zarathustra music. It was really, really, really important to him about the cadence and the sound of it. So I think we probably lose a lot in not reading it in German. And Dimitri and I were talking about this, but there's like there's there's something lo- that that that's potentially lost there. But the the point of the matter is is that he chose to have this. He wanted to evoke a spirit, like revive the heart of things, right? Like let the mind be the entrails of the heart. So I think there's something really important. There's a type of movement and motion, um, and and rhythm to poetry and to music. And I think that is really important. And um, I think that's why he used that style. Uh, but I think what's so interesting is that it actually is like, it makes philosophy come to life in a way, right? Like it, it, it shows us that philosophy has a heart. It has a very big heart actually. And it's not just the erudite, you know, dusty old books and, you know, complicated, you know, um, formulas about like life and existence and, you know, ontology and stuff, even though I love those words, don't get me wrong. But really, like my introduction to philosophy was through literature. It was through it was through books. And I, you know, just a quick thing, and then I'll pass it to Daniel. When I was young, I never really, I didn't really like to read because I'd rather just go talk to somebody. You know, I, I, I was just like, why? why? Why would I just, you know, I had an identical twin, I have an identical twin sister. So we were just always chatting and then we'd like make up imaginary games and we have an imaginary world. And then we'd go talk to people. And, you know, for me, I was like, why would I waste, like, waste my time? But, you know, why would I go read books when I could just talk to people? But my mother, my mother was always reading a book, at least one, if not two or three. Like she always just had a book. You know, she was an avid reader and so curious. And I love that about her. And she would read to us at night. She would read to us stories and literature, literary stories and children's novels, you know, children's literature. And to me, that was so captivating. That was so interesting about her. I love that about her. I mean, there's many things I love about my mother, but that was something that I really loved. And it seemed to always fuel a curiosity in her and, and an interest. And that also made her very interesting too. And so I think for those reasons, like I, I kept that kept me always open to reading. And then I really started to realize like, wow, there's such a power in reading there's such a power in in learning through stories through people's stories you know and uh and the thing is like fiction seems fictional but it's actually driven by ideas right mm. and ideas always have concrete impacts like they have real practical consequences mm. so uh yeah um I, I i think that that's why you know for me i see a very heavy intersection because i i you know i got to philosophy through literature mm. but i'll pass it to daniel now oh excellent and uh, mr swinney oh and thank you for having us today yes. and all these wonderful people that yes. have come on thank you yeah no it's almost like it's gotten to the point in some academia settings where asking what does philosophy have to do with literature is like asking what does jerusalem you know athens have to do with jerusalem and we certainly in our publication efforts have found many literary magazines the moment they sniff philosophy they want nothing to you know no they shouldn't be together they shouldn't <laughs> have anything to do with one another. But what you see in Nietzsche is a rejection of this kind of idea that the literary and the philosophical do not relate. Um, Nietzsche thinks basically that Socrates was the mistake, that we were better off in the pre-Socratics. And it's interesting when you go to the pre-Socratics that you see a lot more literary style in how they wrote, 
um, whether it be Parmedius, or you even see in the nature of things with a little later with Lucretius. And Nietzsche also is going to stress in the gay science some of the mistakes of a dis disinterested, uh, say, science, where you think science is realized, not created, is sort of outside of you and has nothing to do with you. Um, because that's actually for him a kind of escapism. You're running from yourself if you're just saying, oh, these are the facts. Um, and they're the facts regardless of subjectivity. So you don't have to take the subject seriously. And he sees that um, as potentially a form of escapism. Well, therefore, it would make sense that for Nietzsche, philosophy would entail the subject quite seriously. And if Nietzsche, in another part of book five, where he says that the will, he he's is quite interesting. He'll make this point to say that we've lost sight of actually the power of will by confusing will with purpose, for example. Like we tend to say that um, will comes out when you will say food or will sex or will something. But he says that's actually to confuse the engine with a mere kind of steam or manifestation of it. He says the raw will is what is interested to him. And I find this an extraordinary inversion because it counters, say, some teleology or some medieval philosophy or different things. But the issue is if you take the will seriously and if philosophy is in the business of bringing out that will and not getting it lost in purpose, well, then the subject becomes primary. And how does the subject tend to carry themselves in the world? Well, they tend to carry themselves in a very literary fashion. What's interesting with literature, even though we may call it fiction and therefore kind of false, is that we can look at literature as almost a very complicated, high resolution depiction of how reality is. Because you have emotions, you have characters, you have story, you have stakes, you have all these things. What it is missing is the visual, right? You don't see the picture. In fact, you have to imagine the visual. But it has to sacrifice that in order to also give you the voice in character's head, and that's where literature is particularly useful, say, in a brother's Carmos. Karl Mosoff or any of the great works, uh, Ivan Idrak, uh, Andrek, uh, Flannery O'Connor. And very often what we find ourselves constantly having to live with is that voice in our head, that one that's telling us that we're nothing or that we're not capable or that we're insecure. And if literature often like when you read a book there's like a voice playing in your head right which is one of the reasons why i can te teach empathy so much and if that voice which i think is the case is so often what keeps us from realizing the fullness of our will well then it would make sense that you would have a literary form in nietzsche because it is that literary form that really speaks to you also and this is the last point i'll make before passing it to whoever would like to speak is that i think literature is unique in its motivational power like how many people read a story and then they want to go write a story themselves or who read a story and it changes how they carry themselves in the world. They're like, how many people like basically live for Lord of the Rings, right? Like you have these stories that totally transform what people choose to do with their free time and their life. Well, if Nietzsche is indeed a philosopher, in my opinion, who is extraordinarily concerned with the question of motivation and also creativity, because people will read stories and then they'll want to create, right? Well, then it would make sense that it would have a literary form because that is the, sub, the, the message matches medium, right? You have a literary form that is in the business of creation and motivation, and you have a philosophy that is very interested in creation and motivation. And, you know, obviously the third metamorphosis of the child is a wheel, you know, a self-turning wheel, right? And the child creates their own values, as opposed, which is more of becoming as opposed of bestocentricism, where they're simply living by something external to, to themselves. So I think that's why we can start to see the matchup between the literary style of Nietzsche and his philosophy and how they go together. Uh, it makes sense. It's not merely a, a accidental, irrelevant stylistic choice, but it goes the medium and the message align quite well. Wonderful. Um, I, there's a lot of ideas uh, in, in what you both have said. Um, two, two questions that <clears throat> come to mind that, that I wrestle with in terms of this question between philosophy and, and literature is, 
often we're talking about somebody who does pure philosophy and somebody who does pure literature. And it occurs to me that the people who do pure philosophy are actually, their, their story is involved in that as well. So as, as Nietzsche said, you know, philosophers are more artists and biographers than they admit to be in their pretense of objectivity. And also in the same way, people who do pure literature believe that they're just, you know, working with the emotional aspect uh, of existence, whereas whereas they're working with their, their inherited ideas and, and, and also struggling with those ideas. So that was my first thought or, or comment. And my other my other thought and comment was in my own personal life, I began with like Michelle was saying with 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 the arts, uh, you know, and, and wanting to write poetry. And because as a 20 year old or 15 year old, 20 year old, 30 year old, 35 year old, that was what appealed to me, the pure experience, the pure story, right? And now as a 51-year-old, I'm I'm much more propositional and I'm I'm thinking through things. And I feel something has been lost, uh, you know, but also something has been gained that there's there's a sort of sacrifice. And then I want I was wondering if you if you had any comments or thoughts about let's say those stages of life and, and literature and philosophy. And because many people read Dostoevsky and Nietzsche when they're very young. Uh, you know, and then get into philosophy later. Um, you know what I mean? You speak to that for some idea, but go ahead. No, uh, I think a lot more people get into philosophy through story or the arts than often it seems. Uh, mm. Because there's something about story, actually, like really good stories tend to be, say, characters who are caught in deep philosophical intellectual dilemmas, or they're caught between different ideologies that are warring or different notions of justice. Um, and or like the characters are precisely divided because they have different ideas of what constitutes freedom. And actually, those different ideas of what constitutes freedom, maybe like an Isaiah Berlin positive versus negative freedom come in conflict and you go, oh, that's weird. How is it that you can have different notions of the same value and actually get conflict out of that? And a lot of the great stories will actually follow that, which then begs the question, okay, well, what do I think? is the right notion of freedom. Also, it becomes in, it becomes a revelation of the role of hermeneutics in people's life, like interpretation, right? Where, you know, there's a temptation to say, oh, it's just interpretation, therefore it doesn't matter. Well, if you take story seriously, one, you can't escape interpretation. So if you say that it's interpretation, it doesn't matter, then nothing matters. And that's where you get the unfortunate um, nihilism that, you know, Nietzsche is fighting, as opposed to going, well, wait a minute, no, I have to figure out how to navigate interpretation and how to not say, oh, it's just interpretation, therefore it's taste. No, just because it's interpretation, there are better interpretations than others, but it's the question of learning that art form to figure it out. And then you start going, oh, wait, there are certain conditions, conditionalism, as I like to call it, where positive freedom is the value that you should stress and other conditions where negative freedom. Oh, crap. You go from a story, someone in the comments mentioned the Avengers movies, for example, you see all these different, like the civil war between Captain America and say Iron Man, on these different ideas of um, should the government have a role in the superheroes? Well, is that surveillance? Could you end up, you know, Captain America's like, no, I shouldn't do that because it will end up in, say, Nazi Germany or something like that. But then, you know, Tony Stark is like, no, you know, we can't be monitored by government. We have to be free, right? Well, who's right, right? And why do you think, say, you personally as the viewer think that Captain America is right or that Iron Man is right? Well, then suddenly you have to reflect on yourself philosophically, right? And once that moment happens to you, and then I'll pass it to you, once the moment happens to you that you do the flip, 
where you suddenly start asking yourself philosophical world, everything changes. Because if you take that seriously, then it's a rabbit hole. And then you find out that if you can do that regarding, say, justice, well, then you find out you can do that regarding freedom, then with beauty, then with family, then, oh, shoot, because you can have a philosophy of everything. You know, Samuel Barnes is so good at that in the Iconoclast. You can have a philosophy of everything, right? So once you have the experience of philosophy and that sort of shattering to open up the truth of things, then it becomes natural to start spreading that around in lots of other areas of your life. And I think a lot of people, in fact, have that first experience with a great work of art or a great movie or something because it makes them reflect back on themselves. Yeah, yeah, no, that was really good. I, I also, I, I could, I could, I can understand like that tension of like, okay, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's something kind of like lost in, in not the playfulness anymore or something with like, um, the, the, the writing poetry and then like, there's something that's a bit more like ups the game, ups the ante intellectually when you're getting serious with philosophy, right? When you're taking that journey seriously, but somehow, I don't know, it, it, it it does remind me back to like back to Nietzsche. I think there's this very strange paradox that I love to embrace about that even like the the fact that there's like he emphasizes suffering so much right like and embracing it and yet he talks about this like this spirit child that's so that's so you know it's like this the sacred yes and like this 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 playfulness really right but it comes at like the the cost of like earning it in a sense by willing being willing to do the work but I think that for me I I, I sort of take that tragedy as a way to enhance both you know, so like now when I read literature still or poetry, it's it's all the more like enlivened and, and, and amplified or something by philosophy and vice versa. Like when I read philosophy and I'm studying that or it's like it makes me think how to, I constantly kind of think back about like how does this relate to uh, relations and and, and like um, the story or, or, you know, constantly thinking about how to, do you see that in real life? Which relates to narratives and stories, because we're all we all all of our lives are a type of narrative. Um, so, yeah, I guess. I guess in, in a sense, there's like, I don't know, maybe it's just choosing to to sort of like keep the curiosity on in both spheres, because like I, I see them as as so overlapping in so many ways. Um, so, um, yeah, the, it, it's like, I don't know, it's a curiosity, but also realizing that like, oh, there's there is this tragic element too, you know, where there's this sort of a, oh, wow, like there's there's constant irony or there's constant sort of a, um realizing that like, oh, right, I, 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 the ground's kind of swept underneath my feet again. Like I just kind of thought I'd gotten somewhere with something, but at, at the same time, there's, there's, there's something, there's something kind of fun about that in, in a way. Well, I, I will add, I think, please, Mr. Sweeney. Oh no, I just sort of a follow-up on, on, on that um, is, is I'm wondering about sort of the Rambos who, who create poetry at a very young age because they're blazing with, with prophecy that they don't understand and they end up, you know, you know, uh, being a channel for something and becoming getting destroyed. And then the other kind of, you know, philosophers who write too young uh, and make some serious mistakes that they regret later, like, you know, for example, Heidegger and um, people like that. So, so, so I find that even maybe even Nietzsche, his philosophy maybe even came too, too young. I, I often wonder that, like, like that he didn't. That, that, that if he had gone a little bit further in his, his life journey, which, you know, this is speculation and sort of silly, but, but, uh, but that, that's kind of the tension I, I was, I was, I was, I was thinking about, but I told you, I think that's, that's beautiful that if you're able to navigate both realms and of course that, that they need to be overlapping and, and mutually interpenetrating all the time. Otherwise you're going to get too dry in the philosophical realm, or you're going to be too sloppy in the poetic yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, we'll talk a lot in the truism 
the rest on the notion that basically autonomous anything is a force of destruction. And this is based on, say, David Hume, you know, so he'll talk about mm. um, autonomous rationality, which is a notion that you have a rationality that is not bound by common life or correspondence. Because when rationality is not bound by, say, a common life, well, then it's whatever you can imagine and whatever connections you can make and those things will work. The problem is, if you come to, there's a temptation to think that that coherence, that internally consistent system, because it is internally consistent, must work. And if it doesn't work, well, the world must have it wrong, not the theory. And that's where he warns about totalitarianism. Um, uh, Hayden White uh, talked about how literature and history were actually connected, that history was a genre of literature. And I find that interesting because David Hume warns two things. One, he warns that you can gauge the um, health intellectual health of a society by the quality of its literature, which I think is quite important. The other thing is he's a historian and he has seen how autonomous rationality or autonomous theology or autonomous philosophy or autonomous ideas have resulted in, say, all of the religious wars, um, the English Civil War. He's seen all these things. He's written about it. So he designed a philosophy where you start in common life. But then you go off on the philosophical journey and you go to the ivory tower and you learn philosophy and you learn how to think. But then the problem is most people stay there and that's where they become autonomously rational and forces of destruction. What he says is you have to return to common life and re-embed yourself in common life. There's a lot of talk today about re-embodiment, um, reconnection, so that you have rational ability, but it doesn't become disconnected from an actual lived experience. Um, and this is very important because if you don't do that, if you stay in common life and you never engage in philosophy, which is say you engage in creativity, but you never um, balance it with thinking, well, then you might just create a lot of ideas how the world works and force them upon people or have ideas that lead into a, a lot of trouble. Or you go off without creativity and you just become hard rational, failing to understand that rationality is always relative to what you believe is true. This is very important. Like if you think something is rational, you think it is true, right? Well, how did you determine if it was true? Because rationality comes after you absorb something is true. The example I always like to give is if you think it's going to rain today, it becomes rational to bring an umbrella, but let's say it doesn't rain. Does that mean you were irrational? No, you were rational. It's just that you were wrong. It's possible to be rational and wrong. And in our head, we conflate together true and rational, and that causes all the trouble in the world. We have to understand that truth is a category of which organizes rationality, and our truth tends to be relative to our experience, imagination, creativity, personal relationships, and common life, of which then provides the axioms that organize our rationality. And when we disown and don't own the role of those axioms, that's when we end in this um, autonomous rationality that becomes a snake, it, it devours itself because it won't own the fact that it can't be rational all the way down and then it becomes pathological. So the point is for us, Ultimately, creativity and rationality have to have a dialectic so that they don't end up autonomous because both of them, when they're autonomous, become totalizing, ergo destructive. And when you have that dialectic, then you have a dialectic between the true and the rational. And when the true and the rational are not dialectically related, then you get a lot of trouble. But of course, we don't we don't tend to like dialectics because that means active work. We just want to go, oh, creativity is all we need. Philosophy is not needed. And then we don't have to think anymore. Or philosophy is all we need and we don't need creativity. And then we're done. Once you start talking about a dialectical relationship between the true and the rational, the, the creative and the philosophical, there's a lot more work. And you also have to be embodied and be paying attention to your lived experience. Um, so I think we all tend to start off as children more creative. Then as we get older, we tend to become more philosophical, which is a good advancement if we return to the creative. If we stop at the philosophical and don't come to return to seeing the role of imagination, then we can end up trouble. But ultimately, you have to have both.
So the lion it, has to become the child again, right? Yes, it's very important that in the metamorphosis, every oh. stage is included in the other. Like the child includes the lion and the camel inside of them. It doesn't leave them behind. Those values come into it. This is great. And it reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Nietzsche's Zarathustra, where mm. he's uh, he's attacking the modern men of his age for having lost the capacity to believe, mm. which I think you can expand mm. to having lost the capacity to imagine. And he's saying, I don't have it word for word, but you guys think you're oh so wise and oh so rational and oh so developed because you don't believe anymore. But anybody who had to create, he invented his own beliefs precisely so that he could create. And I love this. I love this as a diagnosis of the last man and where we're at. Um, and it does. Hmm, well, th this is a tangible, but I, I, I like it because I also Nietzsche is steeped in in ancient literature and in in the in tragedy in particular i mean his first book is the the birth of tragedy which to andrew's point perhaps he did write too young i think even he came to um distance himself from some of the stuff he wrote in that book but it does always fascinate me that nietzsche from a young age even before he became a philosopher was thinking about sophocles about aeschylus about uh, euripides and uh, and he is um you know that there's nods to dostoevsky and shakespeare throughout his work as well like nietzsche is a man who loves the drama and who loves the tragedy and this conception of what the, the the stance of tragedy is like the complete affirmation of life and the potential beauty of a narrative, even as it totally annihilates the human at the center of it, um, which I think can sometimes get lost in, in in attempts where thinking wants to go beyond the tragic. There's a lot of this at the moment, particularly around my favorite enemies, the metamoderns, who talk about being post-tragic. They're always saying we're post-tragic. In fact, I had a conversation with Brendan Graham Dempsey, one of the metamodern theorists, who said, yeah, I used to be really into Nietzsche and Wagner, and I was quite nihilistic, but then I decided I had to get over that, so then I became post-tragic. You know, I have not quoted him word for word, but that's more or less how I interpret where he's at. And I'm like, dude, you're missing the point. You don't get to post-tragedy. I don't think you get to post-tragedy. I think tried like realizing the state of tragedy, but also realizing it's kind of a comedy at the same time. You can enjoy being in the state of things falling apart because there is still a beauty in it. And this is precisely the way to go forward. And high civilizations with the renaissance england uh, and classical athens were celebrating these as their like core narratives um i think that that's brilliant in, in, in nietzsche's insight and I, I kind of like back to tragedy um. yeah no that's re that's really really great and yeah i mean i think there is this kind of like gravitas to it right there's there's like the the spirit um of it and it's it's just interesting <laughs> right it's just it's fascinating and there's characters you know and there's stakes and i think that's another thing too where you know it's easy to kind of like like you're kind of getting at owen this idea of like being you know we we, we want to kind of like get uh to some sort of like solution and resolution and and you know beyond tragedy instead of realizing that like it's 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 in it's in our fiber. Like we can't get it out of us. It's it's in us. It's in us to be tragic. And and so to embrace that is uh one of the best things we can do. But there's something there's something quite magical, like quite quite beautiful. When to me that's what like is so powerful about like the the great literature 
is that it's able to show you this tragedy and able to not, but like not leave you as an eyelist, right? It leaves you with this sort of strange bubbling over of like, of, of affirma affirming life, of affirming it in its tragedy and, and beauty. And so I think, I think that's, um, you know, I think that's what like, to me, literature always just did so, so beautifully. And um, I would always wondered, like, it was just so magical to me, because I was like, how did they do this? They had this like concept, they had this, they saw things around them, they made observations, and then they were willing to show how we all like, you know, the contradictions in people, right? And, and, and like, the fact that somehow language fails, but they're still going to use language to show, like, this sort of inevitable failure and necessary failure, in a sense. So, yeah. Yeah, well, um, if you think you have a really good philosophical idea, force yourself to tell a story about it. <laughs> and the reason I say that is there's a lot of talk today about the necessity of embodiment. Uh, think in terms of embodiment. Can your ideas be put into stories? And that's where the inevitability of tragedy comes out. Um, another thing is if rationality cannot be its own grounding, then there's something inherently tragic about it because it's always trying to naturally be autonomous and it can't. It has to ultimately ascribe to something outside of itself. Now, I associate this with the becoming other and the identification of otherness that you can see in what I call the absolute choice and Hegel and different things. Um, but also very important with tragedy is the reason why a lot of the great literature, and now I have to defend what I mean by that, ends up tragic, is precisely because it's dealing with ontological stakes that come in conflict. And the moment you do that, you find yourself torn down the middle. Uh, so for example, um, Hamlet uh, wants to get revenge against his uncle for you know committing murder and different things. Following the ethics of Achilles, um, revenge is moral. It is actually ethical to get revenge, right? But following Christianity, it is unethical to do this. And he's caught between two, like the Colossus of Rhodes. He's torn between Athens and Jerusalem. And I would argue, and I have to go through it, uh, lots of Shakespeare is actually the meeting of worlds and being split down the middle. There's a scene that a lot of critics of that play will say is a great waste of time, but I think it's actually the most important scene. And it's where his uncle is praying for forgiveness. And Hamlet comes along and he sees him praying and he can kill him, right? And he doesn't, right? Because he'll go straight to heaven um, because he's praying and asking for forgiveness of his sins. And a lot of people say, oh, this is how he's elongating the play. No, this is very important. Think about what he's doing. He's saying, I will not get the ethical revenge that Achilles would put forth precisely because it will send him to heaven. So there's a blurring of worlds. You have the ethics of Achilles coming in contact with the salvation doctrine of Christianity. And that is why he's doing what he's doing. Martha Noonsbong has a very good book called The Fragility of Goodness. And she warns that because we don't read literature, basically, we've lost the, the category, the mental model of tragedy. What a tragedy for her is, is not merely a catastrophe or something bad to occur. It is a trade-off of competing goods. So you have all of Sophocles, right? Do you serve the gods or do you serve your families? You can't get both. You have to choose one. We see this all the time, right? You have to choose between freedom and security. You have to choose between equality of opportunity or, you know, freedom of outcome, right? You have to choose. You cannot get both. But you see the problem with ideas. And, and to add, for Martha Noonsbaugh, basically democracy is doomed if you don't have a real understanding of tragedy, because it is natural for people to think in terms of problems and solutions. And so when the politicians fail to give them solutions, only trade-offs, they'll say, well, that means they must suck. They're not doing their jobs. And gradually they get more and more discouraged with their institutions and go in the direction of um, extremism, totalitarianism, strongman, and so forth. I think that's exactly what we see today. You know, Habermas talks about the legitimate, legitimate 
information crisis. Um, anyway, when, so when you don't have tragedy as a category, you don't think in terms of trade-offs, you think in terms of problems and solutions. Great literature tends to be how human beings, great characters, whether it be an Ivan Karamosov, whether it be an Achilles, whether it be, uh, I can go on, uh, Compson, uh, Quentin Compson, they are characters who find themselves forced to confront the, re the, the um, reality that life is tragic. They can't escape it. And then they have to choose on how they respond. A lot of great literature takes place between philosophies. And it's only possible, though, because of those philosophies, that if they didn't exist, you couldn't have this space between them that arises to the tragic. And actually, the more and more we enter into pluralism, where you have more encountering with difference, and then I'll pass it to who wants to speak, um, the more and more it becomes the case that we all find ourselves in a sort of literary situation, whether it be like a Hamlet or a Quentin Compson or something like that, where you're encountering difference and have to navigate that difference but how do you navigate it if the value, if you're between the value systems by which you determine navigation, right? What do you do? Well, this can be very existentially overwhelming. One of the advantages of reading literature is you have training and familiarity and habituation to that anxiety. So one does not overreact to it and maybe turn to a strong man or totalitarianism or things like that. So again, th there's two ways to form, then I'll pass it on. We can ask the question of how does literature benefit philosophy and how does philosophy benefit literature? Um, philosophy without literature can just internally find itself in, infinitely consistent. And since it ultimately doesn't have to come into a story, it's boundless. It doesn't have to be tragic. Only in your brain can you be an idealist. Only in your brain can you find everything perfect and all values somehow going together without trade-off. But the moment you have to make it a story, well, then you find out it has to be trade-off. And literature benefits from philosophy because what makes literature so powerful and has the power to change your life is precisely when you see the articulation of that tragedy in a manner that changes how you live your life. Like the Wilka poem, you must change your life. Great literature says you must change your life. You must be someone who learns to navigate the space of tragedies as opposed to being someone who's looking for solutions that if you did find, you just solve your very life away because your life is constituted by a tragic structure. Just a question, just a thought here, because I agree with everything that's being said, but there's the tragic and there's also the cathartic, right? Sure. And there's the, there's, the, there's the crucifixion and there's the resurrection. And if we take the resurrection story as, as leading to some kind of utopia, then I agree with everything you're saying. But if we remain only within the tragic without the catharsis, aren't we going to just fall back into nihilism again? This is sort of because catharsis is implicit in at least the, the literary genre of tragedy like if you read aristotle's ethics yes. he makes the point like the whole reason we enjoy tragedy is for the catharsis and i think this is often what critics of tragedy miss they assume that like because there's different there's like the tragedy of embodied life and then there's the tragedy in art and i think they're actually different that the reason why you enjoy tragedy in art is because it takes the tragedy of life and it enables us to have catharsis through it whereas if you just have the tragedy of life without art then it fucking yeah then it burns yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't questioning the validity of tragedy in in any way. I I think it's. I think. See, I I think what the thing that you're saying that's correct is that if we just have tragedy and then we think we can get to the post tragic, that's a lot of bullshit. Um, because we can't get to the post tragic, but but we can experience the post tragic within the the tragic. That's how I would look at it. And I really like what you're saying, um, OG, about the different, the fact that that we. Because I was I, I study sort of mystical systems and and I, I've been working on on the the Hebrew system and there's all these realms called the Sifrat and the Sifrat are all different realms and one of them might be like logos and one of them one of them is beauty right and then one of them is harshness uh, you know one of them is uh, uh, 
uh, let's say, the feminine and the masculine, and there's all these different polarities, but they cannot ever exist in any isolated uh, thing outside of the entire spectrum. And there's like of these 10 sort of realms, right? So they're always in dialectic. They can't ever not be in dialectic or else or else they're they're dead, you know, or else they are, you know, they're they're not tragic. They're they're just um seeds that don't blossom into anything. I don't know. Did that my little rant make any sense? No, um not I think what you're saying is extremely important. Um uh, you know, um if life was not trade-offs and in fact you could solve it, well then life could end. The very fact that it cannot be solved means that there can always be life, life, everlasting life, like a sort of bunion sense, right? Uh, Benjamin Fondane warned that, um, so he'll talk about in his work, the problem of rationality, and he'll say we need more irrationality. And I actually think there was an entire movement in the 20th century I want to call the, um, the I want to call it the modern counter-enlightenment consisting of people like Blondel, Fondane, uh, Kawabaska, and I can keep going, who really warned how um, autonomous rationality or pure rationality led to totalitarianism. I think today you could say that it leads to a Nash equilibrium, which is a suboptimal result when all actors in a situation are rational. And basically what's very interesting is Benjamin Fontaine was like, hey, the Enlightenment leads us to a world of boredom where everyone is bored and there's nothing to do. And boredom is always very interesting because boredom is not a state where you have nothing to do. It's a state where you see no significance of what you could do. Like you could always go to the movies. You could always do, you could take a walk. You just don't see the point anymore. And so there has to be some sort of excitement. There has to be some sort of incompleteness that actually makes you go, there's something I don't know. Because there's two ways to interpret incompleteness. One, it's hopeless. Two, there's a journey to be had. And so the very tragic element is precisely the precondition, the openness, if we talk about, say, Zizek's self-relating neg negativity, that very openness, that very incompleteness is the same space that can lead you to hell, but it's also the same space that make space for the other. It's also the same space that lets in mystery. It's also the same thing that makes you actually have reason to look outside yourself. So the, the irony is that the loss of trying to remove the tragic from life is what removes the beautiful from life. I'm always taken, say, in a lot of um, religious traditions, I'll just reference Christianity. Why in the world is a cross, a symbol of radical crucifixion, a symbol of ultimate beauty or the, or wounds or blood or different things. Well, I can relate it to one to start wrestled for a long time and had the crap beat out of me by a state champion. Uh, and but how actually that possibility of getting the crap beat out of you in a sporting ring is also the necessary possibility to make triumph and victory and overcoming be there of which is greater. Anyone who's had that experience is greater than, say, pleasure. You know, it's greater than just a nice night watching a movie. Now, that's not to say pleasure is bad. But precisely when pleasure is in concert with a life that also has roles of overcoming, of which is only possible with the tragic, um, that's when it can all feel fulfiller. And that's where pleasure actually can maintain and sustain its pleasure, as opposed to ultimately just falling in the sort of nihilism of the last man that Nietzsche is constantly warned about. So the tragic element is the necessary ontological condition of which makes possible the beautiful, the unknown, and the mysterious. And if you lose that or you let autonomous rationality convince you that that is not the nature of reality, which is easy to believe if you don't read literature because you're not constantly encountering character situations that bring that out, then it's easy to end up as a last man. And I think that's another reason pointing to why Nietzsche used the format of literature in his philosophy. Fantastic. I think everything you said was very clear and, and uh, I, I don't have no argument at all with that. That's, that's beautiful. Cool. Yeah.
something that just came to mind, sorry to jump in, Please. but it, it kind of, it made me think, you know, it's, it's funny how Nietzsche gets so associated with like nihilism and things, because I mm. think, I think he would actually think that a nihilist is a last man, he does. Uh, yeah. that, that there's, there's just, you know, there's really like, they've just kind of given up and he's like, well, that's kind of that, you know, that's, that's pathetic, honestly, like not to be rude, but you know, just kind of in a sense, that's sort of a pathetic move. You, you know, you've, you've given up really. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of interesting to me. Me. But also uh, to, to what you said, Mr. Sweeney, on the idea of um, the post-tragic in the tragic, kind of uh, uh, redeeming the tragic. Because I I, I, th I think that like Daniel hit on this a bit with this bothness, right? There's like mm -hmm. um, Hamlet's in a bothness type of situation. I'm really, really fascinated in that. And um, that has a lot to do with like parado uh, paradox, but often it's kind of like like two parallax. It's a parallax. It's, it, it's, it's different. It's distinct because they kind of like coexist. But in some moments you will have to make a choice. Right. It's kind of like the, a real choice into which one you decide is right in that moment. And like your response will be a choice of which it is. Right. Um, but I was thinking about this, like I think there's, some, there's something really true to the idea of like uh, the cathartic being necessary. But I think that's why, um, you know, it there. like I said, like there's something just interesting about it. Right. There's something that you like you, you also want to read it, you know, like, yeah, it might take some effort. It might take some practice to get into like reading Dostoevsky and these larger novels. But there's something about it where you're like you are gripped and compelled to keep reading and um this this is not uh this is not strictly this is not technically literature but i i count it as like kind of a work of literature it's actually a musical podcast that uh we uh love called in strange woods and this it, it it's amazing it's amazing yeah, it's please amazing. go listen to it it's you on must. the apple podcast called in strange woods but this story is is just so mind-boggling and but it's very it's, there's some really dark things about it and, I, and I'm just kind of like a scaredy cat, very sensitive person. And I'm kind of like, like the first time I even tried to listen to it, I, I was I was like dark, I was alone. And I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> like, I just, this is, I'm scared, you know? So I just didn't listen to it. Anyways, uh, flash forward, I gave it another go in the daylight. And I, I um, yeah, I'm just revealing all my cards about being a scaredy cat. But basically I, I listened to it in the light, like when it was daylight and I got like hooked and I binged, like listened to this for the whole day and, uh, you know, finished the whole production. And this, this story was so good because it was so dark and tragic and scary, but there was all these, like, there was like comedic relief in it. Right. So this like this kind of like the the comedic tragedy, there's like this real tragedy. So in a, in a sense, like there's a tragic there's a tragedy that happens and now everyone has to respond to it. Right. In a way, like not to take the word so literally. Right. Because it's not as literal as just a tragedy, something bad happening. Right. But if there is something of like tragedies, unfortunately, do happen. So what happens post the tragedy? How do people respond? And the way that this was written was like a pro provided like just the right balance of the, the serious, the deep. Um, there was a lot of interesting wordplay with the music and the songs and the ideas. And then there was like, but there was still this, the gravity of it all. Right. But there was enough like comedic relief in there too, to where you're just genuinely like laughing. Like that's so freaking hilarious. But there's also like this really serious story that's that's just like, whoa, this is hitting to the very core of this strange tension we all live with in ourselves in in the in the Roka sense in living with the question, you know, so I just, I just want to touch on that really quick that I think you're right with that. Yeah. Great. Well, well, no, I'll, I'll just add to it. Great literature is like cooking. You have to have the right ingredients at the right proportions. Yes, he's a great cook. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, at the right proportion, at the right temperatures are different things or else it doesn't work. One of the one of the things that has happened is for about for about 50 years, for a long time, people have thought that a good story 
story is something where something bad happens. Therefore, it is good. If there's a crisis, there's therefore a story. There's stakes. A, yeah. yeah. A, a story is not necessarily good just because there's a crisis or something bad occurs. Yeah. There's much more variables that have to come yeah. together. There also has to be, if I just tell something tragic, like someone gets murdered, that doesn't therefore make it a good story. It has to be proportioned with um, characters that respond to that murder in a manner that makes this story worth reading. Yeah, I can yeah. read a newspaper and learn about <laughs> murder. Why do I need to read a book about it? Yeah. Well, because it's somehow unveils a way that human subjects respond to said murder in a manner that either keeps them living. Maybe one character gives up on life, another person doesn't. Someone yeah. else sees murder as a way to go deeper into the hardship of life. Someone else uses it for escapism. So a yeah. good story or literature would say, for example, have six characters who all respond to the murder in different manners and then you as the reader would explore the internal consistency of their responses mm -hmm. to see which one is in fact best and the intersubjective space between those individuals and, well, that's and, and you would notice that all those characters are you you know yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. they're not they're not all of them you know nero and jesus and the whole bunch right are you all the you know, that's just what occurred to me when you were saying it's not like you decide when you read a story that you identify with this character yeah. or that character. These are all potentials within yourself. Well, one of the one of the ways Deleuze is good, and I there are many things that could be said on Deleuze, but he had this at least notion that schizophrenia was important for destabilizing political totalitarianism, maintaining a difference, not falling into some sort of uh, train track where you're led into the future by rationality. So schizophrenia is useful. Now, I think it does have to bring in the dialectic of Hegel. But granted that, it's one thing to know that schizophrenia is somehow uh, has a useful use, like multiple voices, and something entirely else to engage in practices where you literally experience many voices in your head. Like, um, just because you know something does not mean you live it. And see, literature is so important because that's really the only way to actually practice some of the things Deleuze is talking about. Now, Deleuze, I think some of his best books, he wrote a book on Kafka, that's a masterpiece. Uh, he analyzes the role of animals in Kafka, which I adore. Um, and he was a Proust, he did a great book on Proust. Um, but without literature, it is very difficult to get, to actually get some of the benefits of, 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 um, of Deleuze, who also viewed that role of multiple voices as empathy, as opening to the other, as not having an identity that was easily captured by the nationalism, the technology, the ideology, because you're destabilized or you have a destabilized voice. And so literature is a practice for actually living that out and having it becoming something that you truly feel, not just think. Because our life tends to be made by what we feel, not just what we think. And the last thing I'll say on that, that's why philosophy that can't be translated into story or relayed through story doesn't tend to be philosophy that changes our life. A lot of the religions seem to have known that. That's why they have myths and stories and all these different things. Maybe the pre-Socratics knew that as well. If it's not in the form of story, we may think we live it out, but we don't because it has to move to the realm of the full body. And that's where story, that's where philosophy needs story. Well, is religion a collective version of that? And then like literature and an individual version of that? I'm just thinking like, you know, mm -hmm. of Gurdjieff, who said man is legion. And, you know, we have all these different personalities and that's what you work with in the spiritual practice, in a sense, um, is is understanding the infinite nature of your of who you are and your being. Mm. Right. Um, whereas literature seems to be pointed at sort of the individual or. I don't know if my question is clear or my. 
No, I, I think my, my query is clear. But. No, I think religions, you know, there's a few things. So religions are such a term. And often, like when you talk about Christianity, we have to remember that today Christianity is kind of segmented from the rest of society. Whereas, say, Judaism would have described the entire socioeconomic order, what people believe, what they did in their family, how the economy is run, this entire thing. So it ends up, you'll see in religions, this necessity of speaking to lots of different areas of life. Or if you take something like the Torah, it's more like a library than it is a single book. You have different voices, different situations. You have exactly. some parts that are rules, but then there's also Job because we know that you're wondering why bad things happen. So here's a story about Job, which maybe it didn't literally occur, but it literally occurs in your everyday experience. Um, and so we have to speak to that, right? So I think religions do have a destabilized center, but they actually tend to be stronger for that destabilized center because then they can speak to all these different areas. They don't tend to have a single voice. They tend to have like a symphony orchestra, a harmony of different notes that come together to make a symphony. But you, of course, could separate the string section from the trumpets, from the piano and listen to that and then put them together and you have all the different relations that you can do. And I think religions generally, because they also tend to be based on hundreds of, if not thousands of years of experience, rather they can write a paper justifying their position or not, they, they seem to intuit a need for humans to have access to like a full stack. When I say stack, like every layer of human experience in one place that they can go to, they just seem to have intuited that. I don't know if they could offer you a philosophical defense of why that is the case, but there seemed to be an intuition that that was needed. Yeah, and, and hmm. sorry, Mr. Sweeney, but I, I also kind of hear in your question though, do, do uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's this kind of this question like, can literature like replace what religion was doing or or, or does literature kind of orient us too much mm -hmm. to the individual, right? Towards some sort of like collective participation in like allowing the other through literature and these mythical figures. Is that? Is that well, I'm that? thinking like the great literature is always very dependent on, 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 on religion. You know, like Dostoevsky is completely dependent on, on Christianity. Yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas the minor, minor literature or pop culture just needs to invent its own little cute stories that 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 are that are attractive to people and they will they'll watch them but the challenge so so and also even if i look at you know singer songwriters who i've i've enjoyed they very biblical in their their expression so so i i think we when we when we separate literature from from the whole mythopoetics of religion we're we're, we're losing something vital that's what I've. That's the conclusion that I've come to. And often, the the, the artists who are the most penetrating in the culture are are able to express a, a kind of uniqueness in their voice by drawing on the deep well of of, of those uh, traditions. Well, I think that's a very good insight. I think it is very difficult without religion or theology or philosophy to have a meaningful distinction, uh, to use Mr. Luber's language, between story theme and thema. So, for example, let's take the story of Greenleaf by Flannery O'Connor. There's a bull, there's a lady named Miss May, and the bull, I'm going to give you the ending. So, spoiler alert, you might want to cover your ears so you get impaled by a bull at the end. Okay, so that's the story. She so gets impaled by a bull. The theme is in regard to selfishness, cutting off from other people. She doesn't talk to Mr. Greenleaf. She treats Mr. Greenleaf, who's a, basically a slave, a worker for her, as less than human. And how in that being less than human, the only way she realizes how selfish she is, is getting impaled by a bull. Okay, so that's kind of the theme. That would be the idea. 
Very important. Theme is not mere moral. That really hurts. The thema, as Mr. Luber puts it, is part of a Christian ontological conception of where you are lost in yourself. You're in a self-relating negativity of hell. And the only way to wake up from that tends to be grace, where God has to come for you as opposed to you waking yourself up because you're a sinner, so you don't even know how to summon God. But guess what? In a world where you're totally lost, the only way that occurs is violence. So God has to manifest in the form of violence to wake you up. So grace can be violent in the modern world because there's no other way to wake you up. Well, that third layer is the kind of thing that can happen in a story. Now, we could also talk about like the sellout by uh, Paul Beatty talking about racism in America, where he starts off from kind of an itchy suit and he never feels comfortable in his shirt. So the story is about this guy going to court and there's more to it. But the theme, uh, it requires a meta structure of America's history to know what it means that his outfit is itchy, right? Because he never feels it's kind of like Francis Fanon with, um, you know, white, white mask, black skin with this kind of double consciousness the voice sense right so he's never comfortable well you can't get that unless you have a history yeah. that you're part of yeah. it right so there always has to be um in order for there to be a meaningful distinction between story theme and thema you have to have something external to the story that it can point to but here's the funny thing without saying it directly if it says it directly it doesn't work because then it's poured mm -hmm. in from the top it has to point it always has to propaganda like, yeah that's exactly right. Yeah. So a good story, and this is why great literature is almost kind of a miracle, is it somehow manages to point beyond itself while not saying anything about what is beyond it. So it has this radical structure. But how does that work? How does that occur? Well, it's that's a big conversation. I'd love to talk about that. But that kind of even situation is only possible with something like religion or a big history. Um, or something like that. Now, the issue is, like I mentioned, the sellout. The problem is, in order to have that thema, you have to have racism, discrimination, and slavery, right? Well, we don't want that, right? We don't want that to be the thema. That's an immoral thing. We want to stop that. Well, once you start moving into the future, it seems like religion is a more, like, something you can always turn to as a thema, because it's there, right? It's like, it's got a long history, it's a tradition, so you can use that. So if modern literature today doesn't want to say use religion or it's moved beyond that, well, it has to find a new source of thema. I think that's what we see in a lot of the, I mentioned the social justice issue, because in a lot of the literary journals like Plowshares, Georgia Review, different things that we work with, they tend to use social issues or identity or different things like that, because that's where they're looking for a theme, right? Um, and that could be a source. But the question is, without religion, and it's a different subject, there's a giant basket of resources for the creation of thema that you can no longer access. And that does make it difficult for the arts to have. The that same makes thing. just like real, like uh, cinema reality, a documentary style, everything. You know, everything is is a documentary of yes. some sort of real, but but there's no depth to that. There's no historical depth. There's no poetic depth. There's that's why it's so disgusting how political much of the art these days is because it's not even intelligently political. It's just propaganda, and it's just it's just anyway. That's a bit of a rant, but but I, I really relate to what you're saying Owen. do you have a do you want to where are you at Owen? i'm interested yeah in there's lots of uh threads coming together so i'm what i've got in mind is how our friend alexander bard starts his book syntheism by just saying everything is religion and anything that says it isn't is pretending or something like this and th this idea I, I i love it and um i was just hanging out with him over the weekend and he was at one point he was saying i think it's in the Zoroastrian philosophy, this idea that there are not religions, there is just religion. And religion is just a thing that happens. And so there's religion happening in India, and there's religion happening in America, and there's religion happening in Europe, and blah, blah, blah. And they have different 
um, different gods and different systems, but actually it all falls under this single term religion. And there is only really one religion because religion is more or less synonymous with culture and culture is just what people do when they get together. I guess what I then find myself thinking is about the distinction also between folk religion and high religion or folk culture and high culture. I think certainly where I reflect at the moment, I think, and this is a point emphasized by guys like Marshall McLuhan, that the 20th century really was at its best a century of the meeting of folk culture and high culture with stuff like Hollywood and stuff like the the great era of pop music in the 60s and 70s and you could even say 80s but then it kind of begins this decline and it seems like there's a disconnection from say a kind of high cultural core or high religious core and everything is becoming folk culture i might say but not a particularly interesting one because when the folk is disconnected from like we might say like a real powerful transcendental cultural belief it just becomes it kind of tends towards the the everyday experiences so for example there's lots of uh like guys in bars you can go to on a friday night hear it singing trashy love songs that aren't very interesting or there's lots of people who these days want to do art about trauma often it's about racial trauma or sexual trauma or being a, an lgbt trauma but it's always trauma 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 which there is stories and all of this stuff of course there is but it's like these are the only stories that people can even think to tell and which brings me back to the uh the point i made at the start about nietzsche saying that like he who wants to create or she who wants to create for that matter needs belief and i don't think there really is much belief in anything other than telling the stories of one's own trauma that kind of is the religious state of the secular west where we're in and uh and my uh my drive i guess what increasingly lines up to me is like we need to drive towards something again that is like a high cultural core and a high religious core and then from that folk culture will then be able to pick up new sparks and do more interesting stuff. But that to me is the project. Yeah. The high and the low have to come together. I think is what you're saying. And I think that, you know, that, that that's very important. But I also think the high has to establish, like, I don't think we really yeah. have a, there is no high culture uh, that the, the elite cultural establishments have no faith in themselves. All they want to say is that we've excluded people from us. That's the only thing they can say. We need to include other people, which is fine. It's like, okay, yes, like no one's going to argue with that. But if that's your entire reason for being, there, there's no life in it. Yeah, that that was really good. Um, I, I, I like this. That's so interesting to me, this idea that like somehow it's like a bait and switch and somehow tragedy has been switched up for trauma. And like, we, we just kind of like, there's sort of this acceptance, like it's the same and it's not, uh, not that there aren't compelling and interesting stories, but you know, Daniel and I, like, you know, we work on fiction and that's actually the first work we really, you know, did and collaborated on. And like, it's so, it's, it's, it's just so interesting because we have, you know, we, we would kind of well-versed ourselves in the lip mags and all of that. And there's something, it's, it, it would be interesting to think about like the, the actual phenomenal, the phenomenology of reading a story and like what happens when it's like the next level. That's, that's the best way I can put it. It's just next level when it does tap into these mm -hmm. transcendental things, these, these larger, these real stakes. And I'm not saying real stakes to make like, to make them, you know, as if they're not real stakes, it stakes that they're about trauma. Obviously those are real stakes for somebody's life. That's very valid. That's very important. 
Um, but what I mean to say is it's almost like storytelling stakes. There's something about like another layer of stakes. Yeah, the stakes are always going to be there, even if we're talking about trauma. Now we're talking about storytelling stakes, and that's kind of another layer. And, you know, there's something about there's a difference in fiction that actually goes um, it, it kind of like goes farther than it probably should, uh, but then it sticks the landing somehow. And it's just so mind boggling. And I think it's where it can show, it can expose trauma, but also the tragedy of that, the, the, the misinterpretations of things sometimes, how often, unfortunately, tragically, this is what is tragic. Trauma often happens, you know, for good reasons, right? Often people do evil, horrible things because in their mind, somehow they feel like, they're, they're somehow they feel like it's something that they they should be doing they have to do or people feel powerless to know how to even see their own self-worth to 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 uh be able to like and um, make make some sort of um you know stand about their own existence and sort of their own position and i think what what seems to me about like current fiction is especially in like lit mass, is that it seems to be like too bent on saying something it's weird it's like it's like too bent on this is what it should be which then becomes a little bit more ideological, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of what it's trying to do. And there's, because, yeah. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. <laughs> but it's because I think the literature should be prophecy. You should be channeling something. You should be not just describing your own feelings. You should be channeling something larger and bringing in the gods, you know, or or the, you know, the deity of, of, of the situation. You know, I, I would even call it, which perhaps sounds a bit ridiculous to, to modern people, but, but I think it's these grand gestures these grand dramatic gestures, which are which are sort of, it, it again, it's like bringing together the the high and the low. The grand gestures need to be there in in the most minutia of of experience or or yeah yeah yeah. And I, I'll add really quick with with lit mags. Uh, a lot of times you'll 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 read it and be like, oh okay, that was interesting. That was a good story. Or that was wow. That was really sad. You know. But there's something where it does end up kind of just being rather nihilistic. It's kind of yes. like everything kind of just sucks. People are horrible, you know, and it's kind of like, um, okay. You know, like it, it, it's, I think there's sort of a sense in which like, okay, we, I, it's, it's almost like we understand that. And I'm not saying that we can just write off any one story. That's why I'll still read it. That's why I'm still interested. That's why I think actually like, you know, one-on-one -on -one engagement with people, just listening to people's stories is so important, right? Practice of empathy, practicing, listening, hearing something that's different than your own story. Um, but there's some, I think there is a responsibility of the writer and the author to take it to the next level. Because if we don't, then I don't know that we can even address the problem it's trying to identify. Right. So that that's something that you it's know, like just ver me. vertical. It's not deep. You know, it just remains. It remains on the vertical level of, of what. Yeah, I don't think there's any catharsis. It's yeah, like it's pointing to the problems, but the yeah. culture doesn't have faith in itself. And so it doesn't even have the concept of catharsis of its own tragedy, which yeah. is the zombie in a way. Right. The zombie has no catharsis. It's just the living dead. Right. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, if, if I were to tell you, if you went through a traumatic situation and I were to tell you, man, reality is a place of problems and solution, solutions that we can solve. So your trauma is just a result of you, you know, screwing up. But if I were to say instead that, no, the very ontological nature of reality is tragic. And that's why there are traumas or can be a reason there are traumas that we have to go into the details of what kind of traumas, you know, yeah. there are different things. But then actually, funny enough, um, a real grasping of the ontological nature of tragedy can help heal trauma um, and can also help you situate the existence of trauma. Whereas if you don't understand that reality has a tragic element to it, then trauma feels like you're a you are a mistake. 
The reality is a place where everything works together and you just, you got to get out of the way. And so there's actually the removal of tra tragedy heals trauma, basically. If you take mm. tragedy seriously, it can heal trauma. Whereas Absolutely. if you don't have a category of tragedy, then you're a mistake and there's another ring that occurs and we push you out of the way. And then, and then the traumatized actually becomes more traumatized. But the irony here is that tragedy in say, you mentioned the literary magazines, Michelle, Ironically, tragedy is removed precisely so that trauma can give its voice. Yeah, but precisely in that doing that is the removing of the understanding of the tragic nature of reality that can help heal that trauma. Um, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful line, uh, one of my favorite principles, he calls it the first things first principle. And he says that if you put first things first, you get second things also. But if you put second things first, you lose both. And so likewise, if we were trying because of um, um there's an ethical drive, and this is why I think Nietzsche is so wise. There's kind of an ethical drive to say, give voice to trauma, right? Because these people have been traumatized. You want to give them voice. And so there's an ethical imperative to say, stress the speaking of trauma. What Nietzsche understood is that ethics are often what gets you into trouble because those are the things you think it is good to do that. And so you don't question them. The moment I say it is good to do X, well, then you must do X because, because ethics always compels action. You know, St. Augustine was quite good about that. You know, he always warned that if you think X is good, then you do X, right? Like good and motivation go together. So ethics has a lot of power on motivation. So what ends up happening is we have an ethical drive where we say we want to help um, people that are traumatized. Or likewise, you mentioned LGBTs. You say, well, we want to help the marginalized. Therefore, I want my story to change the political sphere, right? I want to have my story convince politicians to have new policy. And you feel ethically driven and ethically justified to have a story be propaganda or a story, or a story showcase trauma without a conception of the traumatic in which to fit it to actually help it heal because the ethics compels you to do so. This is no different than what happens, say, for Christianity, for example. Um, because you want to say save souls, you write literature that's more like a propaganda track that convinces people to go to hell if they don't believe it. And you feel morally justified because, you know, this is the truth. You know, this is God. And so you justify bad art in favor of saving souls, right? So likewise, you justify propaganda and say in, in in the name of say helping people the issue yeah. is that it's not bad at all to make it your life goal to help the mar marginalized or to end racism or different things the the issue is the maintaining of the distinction of fields because the distinction of say what literature does what activism does what economics does keeping them apart is actually what keeps them stronger because here's the thing it's only a part that they can be in conversation together. What makes conversation between Michelle and I possible? It's because we're not the same person. We are different. Now, because we are different, that means you can have disagreement and conflict and misunderstanding and different things. But that's also how you can have conversation. And also think of ideas you would have never thought before. Inner subjectivity has this magical ability to breed ideas you never thought, right? Well, if Michelle and I were like the same consciousness or tried to blur together, or I tried to be like Michelle and she tried to be like me and we both tried to do the same things, then you would actually lose the power of that intersubjectivity or that space between to generate new ideas or sort of transformation. Well, that's what is happening now. If we blur literature with politics, if we jur literature with economics or all these different things, then they actually, ironically, we do that for the sake of making a difference, but in doing that, we remove the space between those fields out of which the power of change actually tends to emerge. It's when you maintain and honor that difference, almost in a kind of Deleuzean sense, that then they can overlay, he'll stress that, or dialectically communicate with one another. Like I would argue that Dostoevsky's depiction of uh, say Christianity or Flannery O'Connor or T.S. Eliot, or uh, I can go on, are actually far better depictions pointing to Christianity than say a book like The Shack. Now there are a lot of people that like The Shack, but The 
Shack is basically a tract, right, on why you should be a Christian or different things. Well, by doing that, it actually ironically loses its power. But when instead you see an Alyosha standing with the children at a gravestone of the dead Koya at the end, and they are able to say hurrah, hurrah in the name of a possible resurrection, that becomes a glimmer of actually maybe for once believing in that resurrection, because it feels like facing the tragedy of the world and seeing the possibility of new life, as opposed to reading a collection of facts off of a piece of paper about things you'd like to believe, but haven't had the emotional movement of your soul to actually assent to them. So literature can be far more powerful in that sense. So we should tell the Christians that they should they should create art, good art, and that's what will save souls, not their stupid propaganda or, or coercion or, or good and, you know, <laughs> um, the, the just, beauty is the it came to, us. it came to me that, that it's just like, I agree totally with what you're saying. Um, be, because, because bad art is the blurring of all of these categories. Well, bad life is the blurring of categories yeah. because then you can't be dialectical. Bad life is the blurring of categories. I love that. Right. I'm going to act as the tribune of the plebs and say it's time to open up for Q&A. Ah, yes. All right. Please. Thank you, gentlemen. That was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Yeah, I loved it. Um, so please, anyone in the audience, uh, if you've got a thought or a question, Dimitri, of course, is ready to go. Go. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think... Uh, I really like your, uh, first of all, first, I really liked, uh, I mean, so much in this conversation. I'm going to have to watch it back because this whole realm of literature is still way too foreign to me. Uh, but I do read Hegel. So, and Hegel does actually make use of, of literature, uh, especially, uh, to my knowledge, in the Phenomenology of Spirit. In the chapter on reason, he has this theory about uh, basically matriarchy and patriarchy, you know, the divine law and the human law. There's a, a kind of contradiction between the state law and the law of the divine, of, uh, of, of the household, of the oikos. So um, the, the person which kind of embodies the tragedy in this story is, of course, Antigone. Yeah. And I mean, what the point you just made about tragedy also to me, resembles really greatly the relationship between Nietzsche and Hegel, because I don't think we should be way too quick with saying, oh, Nietzsche and Hegel are the same, but like there's this kind of very weird uh, gap between them that seems uh, unbridgeable to me in a sense, which can be very productive for that very reason. So what do you think about um, a literature in regards to uh, Hegel and uh, perhaps a figure like Antigone? That's an excellent question. I will note that if Nietzsche equals Hegel, they can't be in dialogue. Um, you know, the structure of Hegel is often this kind of realization of an always already, right? Absolute knowing is kind of realization that you're always occupying all these levels of what Dr. Last calls a phenomenological journey. Likewise, when you read literature and you come to understand that the structure of being is tragic, it was always tragic. It's not just starting to be tragic. It now is tragic, right? And now what's funny, James Wood um, had a lovely book um, how fiction works. And I also should bring that up because he makes a very good case on why good fiction is not merely taste. There are actually rules and structures. And that's very important because philosophy can often seem like it's opinion and just a bit, but there actually is good rules for philosophy, even if there's room for customization. So it goes with literature as well. I'll also note importantly, I think philosophy, you can always have a philosophy of everything. And likewise, you can always have a story of everything. And this is kind of interesting. You can have like a story of dogs, a philosophy of dogs, how you should take care of dogs. You can have like Samuel Barnes, but 
also Stoy. And that's because there's something about Stoy and philosophy that seem to be essential to the very structure of experience itself. And since Nietzsche and since Hegel is very interesting in thought to thought, the very way that we take in the world and subjectively experience, it's not by chance that I think that Hegel has a deep appreciation of literature. And in fact, um, basically all my favorite philosophers also like literature because they understand that a philosophy that cannot be in storied is a philosophy that might just be um, autonomously coherent and not ultimately correspond. Also, and then I'll pass it to you, Michelle, Hegel understands that the, the movement of history and spirit and Geist and is tragic. It, it, there's an inevitable failure that actually leads to the negation to a sublation. If there is no failure, there is no advancement. And so, but that failure is not a result of not trying hard enough. It's tr reaching the maximum limit of the stage and finding that it is incomplete. And that incompletion is then a doorway to the next phase where you can have incompletion. And great literature also has where human beings do everything in their, their power to do what they believe is right and then find that the map is not the territory and that their notion doesn't match up with what is actual. And then the question becomes, how do they respond? Do they go like Hamlet and kill everyone? Uh, do they lose their mind? Or do they somehow learn to live in that tragedy and find beauty in it? Yeah, I'll just add really quick, like not, not to reduce it so much, you know, but thinking about Hegel in his negation and, and like the idea of allowing sublation, I think that like to me, the great literature is, is, is able to contradict itself within its own work and, and allow for a sublation. It's able to allow for this ability to um, actually go to the what would counter, you know, counteract what it thinks or what it says. It's not afraid to go there. It's not afraid to go into the contradiction, quite literally, against itself, against what it has said, against what it's proposing, and and allow that almost like vicious countering. And yet it's almost like in that same moment, there's this ability to kind of like birth something that is sublating that and kind of holding the tension of the bothness of that within it. And to me, that's what I, that's what like next level literature is. That's what next level fiction is. Uh, and, and so important because that is life. That is life. So, yeah, to me, that's kind of like it, it's a very simple thing. You know, maybe it's reducing Hegel too much there, but that's my thought on it. Yeah. Great stuff. All right, Mr. Egil. So no, uh, I'm not a Hegelian. My my thought, thoughts uh, would be around the lines of okay. So uh, if the Christians should make great art to get new new followers to Christianity, uh, where are uh, where is the good art? Or, today uh, in what subcultures, in what ideologies, in what movements? Uh, and uh, a vaguely related question, what do you think about Harry Potter and the methods of rationality? That's an excellent question. I will also say there's a few things. One, the, the, the notion of Christians, say, gaining followers is actually countered in the tradition quite a bit. Like Gregory of Nicaea, for example, was like, no, 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 no. If this is a precious thing, they got to come here. We're not going out there and telling them. Uh, and there's a great book by uh, Jonathan Mausick by Secret Faith in the Public Space that actually talks about how secrecy is actually compelling because it drives people in and that the more Christians have actually engaged in sort of proselytization has actually hurt them. Um, also, so that, that's important to note. Um, also, too, like the idea that Christians should great 
should, you know, the should, I, I don't know if I would say it's an odd, although I, I understand you didn't mean that, but it's mm -hmm. like, if you truly believe in this vision, this beautific vision, as sort of some of the medievals will talk about, and it's truly filled you with beauty, truth, and goodness, it can't help but spill out of you. And I think that actually is quite Nietzschean. There's this notion that if you're really, really driving into the will and becoming a child, it can't help but spill out of you. And I actually think, I actually think, frankly, like I was a Hindu concert, I don't actually know of any religious tradition that doesn't emphasize that, that the religion should spill out of you uh, because it's just in your very participation and being, and it comes out of you. On your question of what the great art is, um, in Strange Woods, we mentioned, uh, you know, we mentioned that. Um, I, I do think, um, I do like Marilyn Rob Robinson. She did Gilead. Um, you know, some of the newest, I always like Wallace Stevens. Now he's an atheist, but he's part of a tradition that can actually have a theme and speak beyond it. Um, I do think you have a Christian Willman who wrote a wonderful poetry collection called My Bright Abyss. That is very good. Um, I also am going to, uh, in regard to movie, gosh, there was that movie I saw like three years ago that was good and I can't remember the name of it. Um, but but honestly, though, I will and I'm not I, I think a lot of unfortunately, the last 10 years of literature has been swept in a political moralization that has led it to struggling to be effective. Um, now, I have read a few short stories. It was actually American um, best short story collection. There was one story in there about a nunnery that caught on fire that was maintaining children by a woman. I can't remember. That was good. I actually did like uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Eagle. I thought that was quite good. Um, uh, and I actually thought that that spoke beyond itself because it spoke to a theme of pluralism. It also did, in fact, own the basic inevitability of irony and tragedy it was quite good. Um, uh, all the stars we can. So anyway, those are some that come to mind. Oh, the, the, the Christianity. Yes. Um, just, just really quick. I just want to say, yeah, basically to everything Daniel said. Um, but Chad, I think you're going to find it in the weeds, honestly. I don't, I don't know that you're going to find it, you know, necessarily on the bookshelves per se, but you never know. I mean, you can't just like close yourself off just because it was published by Penguin that like, oh, it won't be tragic. You never know. You just don't know. You got to open yourself up to it. Open the book and let it open you up. Go ahead. Yeah. And I mean, in regard, I do think Don DeLeo is very good. Um, I think he has actually a movie coming out for White Noise, which I enjoyed. Um, I did like David Foster Wallace because he is also speaking to this dilemma of the last man. And in the in the Pale King, he's also going to be confronting how boredom can be something that you actually, if you go to the extreme of it, in the same way we've been talking about, you go to the extreme of it, can, can negate into the ability to have serenity. So how can you work at an IR, IRS agency and follow that to a level of modernity where you learn to make it uh, serene? So I think the Pale King is quite good. Um, I, I did like... Um, Jonathan Franzen's earlier work. I was not a big fan of Purity. Um, I, Don DeLeo, um, Philip Roth, I, he passed recently. I never liked him, although a lot of people would say that. And there's one more that escapes me. Uh, but those are some that come to mind. Amazing. Madalena. Hi there. This is fantastic. I can't help thinking what you guys talk about at breakfast. <laughs> well, actually, our children do the talking at breakfast. Is what occurs. <laughs> well, and 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 how old how old are your children? Um, seven, five, and two. Oh, yeah. so they've joined the conversation for sure. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I I, yeah. I think I think it would be fascinating to see um, what happens at that breakfast table. Um, <laughs> anyway. Speaking of, you know, in real life, um, 
I, I was just curious if, if you guys um, had come across, I came across this um, recently about this interface between Freud and literature of an early correspondence with a friend where they actually learned Spanish together in order to read Cervantes and took on um, the names of the Colloquio de los Perros, which is a dialogue between two dogs, and that um, Freud signed as Scipio, uh, which was the dog that listened to the story of Berganza. So there seems to be something about this early correspondence and exploration between this literary, um, you know, Cervantinian uh, um, sort of story where two dogs discover that they can speak, but they think that it might stop in the day, so they talk all night, and 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 the Scipio dog encourages the other one to tell the story. And apparently this went on for like 10 years and they called it the Academia Castellana, you know, and it's just, and there were all these rules about the conversation. Anyway, it just seemed like an interesting place where the two crossed. I thought I would share that. Well, that's magnificent. I got something to read now. Uh, I mean, I love Freud and I love Cervantes. I mean, that's uh, that's tremendous. I actually think I'm glad you brought up Freud. Um, and Michelle spent a whole semester studying Cervantes. Uh, Cervantes is a big deal. Uh, and that's one of the great books. You know, Harold Bloom basically called it the greatest novel. That's probably in the ballpark. I'm very partial to the cutting of uh, the hay scene in Anna Karenina. But basically, um, psychoanalysis. The other thing I was going to say, oh, um, Literature, so philosophy that's like still alive and not been killed by the deconstruction of the analytical tradition that's more on the continental side. Although I actually have a very deep respect for like Wittgenstein and Frege and all these people, even if they didn't finish their project or whatever. I actually think continental thinkers could benefit greatly from the discipline of language that you can see from the analytical thinkers. If you could kind of sublate that without the same effort to reduce philosophy to basically mathematics and symbolic logic, maintaining that I said, but um, but. A lot of really good philosophy tends to take seriously Freud, take seriously Lacan. I mean, obviously Zizek, but likewise, a lot of my favorite philosophers take seriously literature because there's something about both of those that suggests that subjectivity and the way that the human carries himself in the world must be a necessary component of your philosophical project. If you bracket it out and say, oh, it's just subjective, then your philosophy is basically trying to be like science. And why would you do philosophy and not science? And Stephen Hawkins comes along and says, philosophy is dead. Well, yeah, because the philosophy is not in a kind of... Um, uh, psychoanalytical or, or phenomenological business, then it's hard to see where it positions. But if you open that up and say, actually, no, you can't reduce humans to their, you can't reduce holes to their parts. The parts and the holes are always in concert and they go together. Well, suddenly literature has a big deal. Suddenly Freud, um, psychoanalysis, those things have a big deal. So I'm going to read that. I, that sounds amazing. Me encanta Cervantes. I love Cervantes. <laughs> I lived in Spain and, you know, read it like in the, in, the Casti uh, in, in, in the Castellano. And um, like, honestly, the idea of that you bring up here with like language is interesting to me because I think there's something about kind of like, this is a little bit abstract, a little bit, um, you know, yeah, it, it's a, it might be a little bit off, but I think the relation I see here is that to me, reading good literature is kind of feels a little bit like learning a new language. You know, there's a vulnerability there. There's, there's a having to let your guard down, you know. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I don't think you can do it with like, I think, you know, when you learn a language, you will make so many mistakes 
And mm. I think I think literature invites you to make mistakes along with it. So no, and it's funny that they taught themselves Spanish I know, in order that's so cool. to read this story of two dogs talking to each other. You know, I mean, it, it, it's just I think it's absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, that, that's funny. That reminds me, I was just reading a biography on Frank Ramsey, who's like the forgotten genius of Ox Cambridge or whatever. And he like basically learned German to translate Wittgenstein into English. And I'm like, today, we're just trying to shut down YouTube videos so we can focus. And they're freaking learning whole languages. I'm like, oh, OK, I'm, I'm <laughs> OK. <laughs> OK, guys, let's do uh, Javier's question quickly. See if we can get it done before we hit the. Uh, the oh, yeah. Hey, Javier. Guys. He's skipping class um, for us. Look at that guy. He's so nice. Would you guys say that um, literature has the capacity to ha- it, it entertains new forms of subjectivity for us that we've never encountered before? Which is also tragic in the sense that if we're stuck in autonomous rationality, we're never engaging with new forms of subjectivity. But then also, there's something about literature that has this passion for the impossible. Like, you just hear ridiculous stories, right? Like, things that you're like, oh, that's not real. Uh, that's not true. And yet, it is still happening. It's still occurring. Um, it seems like to be against tragedy is that we have this sort of objectification again, of tragedy itself, where literature has a sense of displaying tragedy in the sense of like a, a maybe. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a maybe tragedy. It's kind of like the parable of the Chinese farmer, right? Things are happening to him. And everybody's going like, oh, my God, like, you know, how do you feel about this? And he's like, well, maybe, <laughs> you know, but there's something beautiful about literature that shows us this beauty of the maybe tragedy that is, I feel, is actually post-tragedy. The, the maybe is the post-tragedy, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. No, that was really good, Javier. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I definitely think literature allows you to enta- entertain, um, uh, you know, new forms of subjectivity. Um, something Owen said at the beginning before we started recording is he talked about how, uh, you know, it's it's allowing like yourself to be impregnated with other subjectivities, you know, and it's uh, it's strange because it's like this practice of embodiment that you're not really, it's all in the head, but it does kind of like, it possesses your body, right? You're the body now that has to kind of now be impregnated by these subjectivities. So I think you're absolutely right with that. I really love that idea of um, the, the, the maybe and the perhaps that is like uh, in the tragedy where we don't want to just subjectify tragedy itself, right? And I think that's the that, that the pitfall with that would be to, um, you know, make tragedy what it isn't basically, you know? Uh, so I, I think I think like including that maybe is very important. And, the, and like what that then uh, fosters is the uncertainty, right? Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that was really great. Well, I mean, literature is one giant maybe. You know, this might be the world that you're in. This might be a kind of character that exists in the world. And are you ready to meet them? Are you ready to maybe become more like them? Maybe, maybe, you know, it's up to you, right? Um, Just because I would argue the ontological nature of reality, what a phrase, is tragic, does not mean that you will necessarily encounter tragedy tomorrow or maybe ever, maybe you get lucky. But if you at least know that, then if you do, you're prepared. Um, and then if other people are going through that, you'll be there. It's only a matter of probability. You know, one must always avoid hard determinism, but it's pretty, it's almost practically inevitable that one will encounter tragedy or people that have undergone tragedy or where you find your idea, your, your ideas do not match the actuality. And then the question is, how do you respond? Um, most of the time, it's very natural to respond pathologically. Oh, she sent the link. Oh, great, great, great. Thank you, the Cervantes link. That's good. Um, so, uh, but it's very natural to respond pathologically or in a manner that effaces, as you know, I like to say, as opposed 
to when you encounter the tragedy, instead of undergoing effacement, you say, well, I'm going to negate my idea of how the world works and how I thought things were. And I'm going to negate that abstraction to live a concrete reality, sublate into a concretion of which is ready for that and lives according to that and figures out how to make beauty for that and how to be open to difference in a manner that would make me becoming other and having those other people in my head or other voices in my head. And the thing is, I'll also note that if you become other, since there always is a maybe, there's always motivation. Why be bored? You know, are you bored? Maybe. Yeah. Well, there's always an escape, right? Like one of the great problems of the autonomous rationality or autonomous whatever is there's no maybe. You're stuck. It's the internally consistent. It's all there is. So the game is over. It's not complete. It's over. And so the maybe is a source of life. And literature is a reminder of the ever maybe, of which means there's ever the opportunity for ever life. That's a nice way to perhaps conclude our events. The ever opportunity of everlasting of life. ever life of ever life. Okay. okay, I made up a word with a ever hyphen. life. I snuck ever that life. in. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. And I just realized that we've been talking for an hour and a half, and it's more like we've been talking for four hours because there's two of you, and you both speak about three times as fast as the average person. So think of all the content that we have here. We have at least six hours of content probably. And, and so we could watch, I hope people will come and watch this over again because, um, but strangely, I found it incredibly, I could follow and, and it was very, very beautiful. And I think this is one of the best, uh, one of the best, talks we've had at parallax so th thanks so much for coming <laughs> oh i agree i hope we can do it again we enjoyed it this has been a blast to be here. we're all gonna have ice cream tonight and go look at the christmas trees so. we have an after party if somebody if you guys want to come by and and, and drink with oh, us and, sneak and in have a minute. drink uh, it depends if, on if, if grandma like has if, if grandma's like the carrier pigeon or something i can only imagine how fast the three children speak it's 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 funny i was just oh, thinking this morning about yeah. how much I was like, you know they're just they're chatty just like we're chatty <laughs> it's, so it's so funny we always but we always keep a good stock of waffles in the freezer so we have a defense mechanism we're like waffles waffles eat Waff does eat, that slow them down eat. to get the waffles all the time oh yeah they have to chew yeah. now they're yeah. learning how to eat in one side of the mouth while talking to the other so we'll see how that goes in different things um but no this has been a delight thank you so much for the opportunity yeah. it's thank an important topic here. and we've enjoyed it very much yes. so thank you